Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender for today. So grab a cocktail and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot! Beep beep! Welcome back to another round of drinks with your bartender, Trish. Today we are doing the Bud Light Sours. Like, what? The Bud Light Seltzer Sours? Yeah. Yes. They are so good. And since this is a two-part episode and there's four flavors, what I'm going to do, one to make it a little shorter for you guys and also a little easier on us for drinks. We're going to split these into two flavors for this one, this episode, and then you'll get the other two flavors in part two. So the first two flavors we did were the blue raspberry and the watermelon flavors. They were both so good. The blue raspberry tasted like Sour Patch Kid. Yes, the blue raspberry by far my favorite. It was so good. And what I like about these is you don't get a big, you don't get like a Bud Light taste and you don't get a big seltzer taste. Right. It tastes like juice. (laughs) I mean, there's a little bit of seltzer. I've, I've talked before about how I can't really handle a lot of carbonation. And so... I would need to let this drink go a little flat before I could drink it still, but it's definitely a lot easier to handle than most seltzers. Yes. But like I said, these are a newer item for them. We struggled to try to find these in store, but we finally did. And I am so happy that we found them. Like I said, the blue raspberry was really good. Definitely you get that big blue raspberry taste. The watermelon, you definitely have to like watermelon because it is very... In your face. Yes. Um, I know one of our friends mixed watermelon and the lemon flavor together and he said it tastes like, like watermelon lemonade. So, might have to try that out. But, yeah. Those are the first two flavors we're going to cover. Like I said, in part two, you will get the other two flavors. But so far, they are a big hit with us. And I guess we'll go ahead and kick you off to the episode. All right, another round with your crime tender, Sloan. I do want to add a big, like, asterisk to the beginning of this episode because I do feel like I will be pretty disrespectful as far as, like, where this takes place. And just a reminder that I am also from Bonefuck, Mississippi, so I'm literally talking about my own backyard. If you are offended by that, (laughs) I'm not going to apologize for where I came from. (laughs) Like, it is what it is. But Mississippi is a great place, but there are also some very dark corners, and we have a very dark history, too. So, without further ado, let's continue. Picture this, 
December 6, 2014, in rural Bumfuck, Mississippi, you're driving the country roads and you see a car off the side of the road in kind of a field and it's burning up in flames. You call 911 to report this because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it can really cause danger. It's I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge flame. So you call 911. Firefighters, volunteer firefighters arrive on the scene, and that's when everyone notices what seems to be a person set on fire walking out from the woods behind the car towards all of you with their arms outreached saying, help me, help me. That's exactly what happened to LaTroy Rudd and Glenn Williams of Cortland, Mississippi on a night that they and most others in this community, and to be honest, around this country, will never forget. <laughs> this is the case of Ch Jessica Chambers from Cortland, Mississippi. Like I said, December 6, 2014. So some of you may remember this case happening. It was nationwide news. I very vividly remember this case. I was other going to say, the name sounds familiar. Other than Natalie Holly Holloway. Holly I was about to say Hollywood. Other than <laughs> Natalie Holloway, like this was the other case that hit very close to my home and like kind of turned on the crime, true crime buff that I have become in yeah. my life. So I remember whenever this case came out, my husband, then boyfriend, and I had just started dating. I was over at his house. I read the news and I like sat in his bed and cried because this was just such a horrific story. And a lot of her life resonated with me, like just Mississippi girl. We'll get into that. So anyways, moving on with the story. Jessica Chambers was born on February 2nd, 1995 to a loving family from Cortland, Mississippi, which is in the Mississippi Delta. It's about 65 miles south of Memphis with a whopping popula population of 511 people, give or take a few. Her parents separated when she was three, but they always put their children first, or at least they did their best to. Her father, Ben Chambers, was arrested early on in her life for manufacturing methamphetamines. So that's a little interesting tidbit. Yeah. But whenever he got out, he quickly got his life together, and he was actually hired to be the in-house mechanic for the local sheriff's department. So he went from prison to working for the sheriff's department. I was like, okay. I also kind of like a little asterisk here. I grew up in, around Jackson, Mississippi for most of my life. So I know exactly where Batesville is, um, which is kind of where the city is. But you pass it on the interstate between Jackson and Memphis. So like there's this little outlet mall. My grandparents would take me there. So like I'm very familiar with Batesville. Cortland, not so much, but... Once again, this all hits very close to home. I was watching the documentary today and like kept crying over and over again because it just, yeah, it's a case that truly affects me deeply. So if I make jokes, please understand that it's not lighthearted. It's just how I cope with trauma and hard feelings. Yes. In 2012, Jessica was 17. Her big brother, Alan, actually died in a car crash. He was 28 at the time. And Jessica's family said 
that this really deeply affected her. They, she was very, very close with all of her family, but specifically her oldest brother. And they kind of pinpoint this as the moment that changed her life a little bit she became the rebellious teenager after this yeah before her brother's death she was a cheerleader at south panola high school she was a flyer for the cheerleaders scared the shit out of her dad every time they would toss her up he was afraid (laughs) they wouldn't catch her things like that i went to northwest rankin high school we played south panola once for the like high school football playoffs and south panola is actually like nationally renowned as far as high school football goes because they had a streak in the late 2000s of like a 60 or 90 game winning streak it was something crazy like that and we played them during that time my school lost it is what it is (laughs) but whenever this case came out I was like I remember being in that town and they would show the football field and that's the football field that I had been to like things like that really kind of make these cases super different for you you know Yes, so when they're home cases and you can recognize things, you're just like, oh, shit. Yes, but she was a cheerleader, and then around the time, shortly after her brother's car crash and death, she actually left the cheerleading squad altogether and became very rebellious around that time. She started hanging out with different crowds, acting really different towards her family, yelling at them, things like that, but... In the documentary that I watched today, they interviewed her mom and she was like, I will always remember Jessica by her bright blue eyes and her big smile. And I will say that that is one thing that you will definitely notice about this girl in the pictures that you see of her. And we will have some of those posted to our social medias if you want to see them or just pull up google.com and search for her. But she was a very gorgeous, vibrant young lady that was growing into herself. Yes. Um, her aunt said that her eyes and her smile could light up any room that she walked into. And once again, that's one of those statements that you kind of roll your eyeballs at, but sometimes you can actually look at them. Sometimes you can actually look at them and be like, Hey, that is who that person is. Well, I'm sitting here going, that'll never be me. (laughs) We have the dark clouds over our heads. It's fine. It is what it is. But Jessica was also very aspirational. She had a lot of big dreams and they changed constantly. She at one point wanted to be a teacher to help mold the future. And then she wanted to be a book writer because she just wanted to like let her creative self go. And then she also wanted to be a nurse, which tended to be the one that she would also always circle back to was being a nurse and her family remembers her being very compassionate and caring and loving so a nurse sounds like it would fit her you know a nurse would not fit me but it is once again it is what it is so i thought i wanted to do (laughs) i never i can't do blood it's not like that meanwhile i can sit there and eat a whole meal and watch like Grey's Anatomy and everything it's different on the tv it's like different if it is Okay, I'm not I'm not gonna continue. Nope, can't continue that thought. Anyways, <laughs> so yeah. She graduated high school. All that good stuff. So December sixth, the day Cortland, Mississippi changed. On the morning of December sixth, two thousand fourteen, Jessica was spending time with her friend Quentin Quentin Tellis, 
they just kind of rode around for hours before they split ways. And if you ask me, they were riding around smoking. An assumption based on what other people said that Jessica did while she was riding around town. So they were probably riding around smoking a little weed. It is what it is. It is 2014. And then Jessica dropped Quentin off before she went home to take a nap. And then Jessica's mom reported that Jessica got a phone call and phone records show that it came from Quentin. From Quentin. Jessica did not take that phone call from him, but she did text him a few minutes later and said that she would go out to eat with him if he was going, going to pay for it. So that was around 4.32 p.m. that she texted him. At 4.59 p.m., there is a brief 33-second phone call between Quentin and Jessica. About 30 minutes later, at 5.29, the security camera at the gas station M&M, and yes, that's the name of the gas station. At first, I thought that they were saying she was walking out with M&M. <laughs> no, the gas station's name is M&M. So, the security camera from M&M captured Jessica there. With her phone in her hand, making a phone call, she gets in her car, and then she heads south on US-51. The phone logs show that she called Quentin at this time, and we're going to have a picture of this posted on Instagram, so feel free to look at our Instagram, or once again, pull it up on Google, whatever is most convenient for you. But the way that this is set up is that it's kind of a triangle And the gas station is less than a mile away from Quentin's house. Yeah, it seems a little... uh... Like, you can see Quentin's house very blurrily from the security footage. That's how close his house is. And this gas station, I, once again, I grew up in Mississippi. So in my head, I can see several of these rural gas stations in my heart of hearts. I know they exist in Alabama, Louisiana, the other places that I've traveled here in the South. I have not experienced most most of the country, though, so I don't know what, like, rural gas stations look like everywhere else. But, like, we will have a picture of the outside of this gas station for you. It is (laughs) honky-tonky, broken down. It is very shocking to me that they even had a security camera, even though it was 2014 sort of situation. But... So the phone logs show that Jessica calls Quentin at this time, and he basically lives at the gas station. In my notes, I said he practically lives at the gas station, and I mean that figuratively and literally, like he's always there, but he also right. like lives there. So yeah. So five minutes later at 534, Quentin calls Jessica back, and when he's questioned by the police after the fact, he said that he was asking Jessica to come pick him up during this phone conversation. So, at 6 p.m., Jessica's phone location shows, Jessica and Quentin's phone locations both show that the two are headed to Batesville, Mississippi, about 10 minutes away to get Taco Bell. So, like, yes, they could be traveling in cars right around each other, but it makes more sense that they are just actually together. Yeah. In my opinion. While there, Jessica tried calling her friend Keisha Meyer, who was with the two earlier in the morning while they were riding around smoking. But Keisha was out of minutes on her phone, so she couldn't answer. <laughs> Remember those days? <laughs> yeah. I mean, she had a pay-as-you-go phone, but yeah, like, I, 
like I said, I really feel like I just understand this girl in the position that she was like <laughs> where she was at in her life at this point. But 17 minutes later at 6.17, Quentin called his sister as they left Taco Bell and they headed back down south. This is the only time Quentin's phone was used between 5.34 when he called Jessica to pick to quote unquote pick him up. We don't know what was actually said. And 7.42 p.m. This is the only phone call made at 6.17. So 6.30, the two, the duo, the couple, whatever we're calling them, they arrive at Quentin's home to find that his mom's white suburban is in the driveway. Quentin had told investigators that the two were smoking weed in Jessica's card car out in the field at this time. And from previous text messages between the two, investigators assume that Jessica would not go inside if Quentin's mom or sister was inside the home. Um, pretty much like he would invite her over and she was like, no, your mom or your sister is there. I'm not coming over. So we can kind of assume that because the car was there, she was not willing to go inside of the home at that time. Yeah. At 6.48, Jessica called her mom for what would be the last time. This call lasted 76 seconds. Her mom thought the phone call was a little unusual to begin with because there was not any background noise or music or anything going on, which was very unusual for Jessica because she was always like around other people, usually at parties or somebody's house, just hanging out. But there was always something going on. So her mom assumed that she was with somebody, but she didn't really know who it was Because there was nobody that made sense for her to be with at the time. Yeah. And we'll find out why later. So she told her mom that she would be home soon. And that of course she would clean her room whenever she got home. And then she tells her she loves her. Hangs up the phone. Continues on with her night. 7.30. So 45 minutes later. Jessica's cell phone location shows that she's no longer at Quentin's house. But now she is on Heron Road which is where she was found with her car set on fire. At 7.42, Quentin calls and leaves a voicemail for Jessica, and then he texts her immediately saying, Bay, my friend is coming over tonight. I'll call you tomorrow. Good night, sweet dreams. I really want y'all to remember this text message because this is actually going to be a two-part episode. I do apologize now, but there's just so much information. But this is a key piece that I want y'all to remember for the part two. He texted her and said, Bay, my friend is coming over tonight. I'll call you tomorrow. Good night, sweet dreams. But that was at 742. At 8.04, Jessica's phone is no longer traceable by the cell phone towers, assumedly because it is over overheated. Slash it's on fucking fire at this point. Because at 8.07 is when LaTroy, Rudd, and Glenn Williams from the top of the episode see the car on fire and they make the 911 phone call to report it. At 8.09, two minutes later, first responders begin arriving on the scene. Initially, it's just firefighters because they're only told about a car being on fire. So they pull up, they assess the situation, and then that's whenever they notice Jessica walking out of the woods, literally burning alive, looking like something from The Walking Dead. She was burnt beyond recognition at this time, and her car is still blazing beside her. They then ask her to identify herself, and she responds, 
with her name, Jessica Chambers. And that is when everybody on the scene is kind of like, oh my gosh, what do we have here? Because remember, her dad works for the sheriff's office. So these are all like public figures. They have watched this girl grow up and now they see her coming out literally on fire. The ones that didn't know of Jessica directly at least knew of her from around town, but they all kind of knew her. Someone then asked Jessica, who did this to you? To which she responded something they could all barely understand. But the general consensus of the group was that Jessica had responded, Eric or Derek did this to me. So at 8.30 p.m., the police contacted Ben Chambers, Jessica's father, directly to let him know about his daughter. Ben then sent his wife in a police cruiser to get Jessica's mom, Linda, And, like, she shows up and gets out of the car and she's like, they set her on fire! And Lisa's like, who? And she goes, Jessica! And she's like, no, I just talked to Jessica. She's fine. And it just was a whole moment. But the three of them all rushed to be with Jessica because Jessica was airlifted to a hospital in Memphis immediately to a specialized burn unit. They wanted to give Jessica her best fighting uh, fighting chance to stay alive. She hung in there through the night, and the doctors did all that they could, but there really wasn't much hope for her. At about, in the early hours of the morning, Linda went to Jessica and held her hand and told her, It's okay if you're in too much pain to continue on now. You fought as long as you could, and we're all proud of you, and it's okay to let go now. And her mom said that she really feels like that Jessica was waiting to hear that it was okay for her to go because almost immediately Jessica passed away in the early hours of the morning as her family was surrounding her. Oh, that was one of the parts that I cried in the documentary, not gonna lie. So back to the crime scene. The detectives found Jessica's phone and pieces of her bra scattered around her car before they towed the car away to the sheriff's department for further investigation. Immediately, the the Panola Sheriff's County called in the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and the FBI because they knew that they were going to need a lot more help than what they were used to dealing with. The doctors and the investigators concluded that there was an accelerant used, probably gasoline, and it was thrown on Jessica based on the burn patterns of her body. It was splotchy, and you could almost see where the gasoline had been poured directly onto Jessica's chest. So, whew, on to the theories of who could have done this. First, I wanted to get it out in the open that Jessica's best friend, Keisha Meyer, did tell the police that Jessica was selling weed and that the two of them would often drive around smoking. Others in the community knew that Jessica's boyfriend was in a gang and therefore assumed she was also in a gang and maybe therefore her death was related to a gang death, like like she was killed because of the gang or because of drug deals or something like that. So the DA did look into this as a possibility, but they didn't believe that she was directly affiliated or associated with any sort of gang activity or that this was weed-related in the least bit. So then, the public and the internet sleuths were very very quick to accuse the gas station attendant who was on duty the night that she 
that she was murdered. 19-year-old, I am going to butcher this and I do apologize. 19-year-old Ali Alsani, whose parents owned the gas station and he worked regular shifts there. He was cooperative with the investigation from the get-go. He handed over all security footage. He answered any questions he could. He did. He really went above and beyond. He knew Jessica. He, I wouldn't say like he cared for her, but like as soon as he found out that she went missing, he was like, what can I do to fix this? And the internet was very quick to blame him because of his nationality. Welcome to freaking Mississippi, man. There were a lot of like internet sleuths that would call for hometown justice. They wanted people to go and burn down his gas station, just like Jessica had burnt down. They said that he deserved to die too, all because of his skin color. He is literally on film the entire time of the murder. But that was not enough for these people to call for him to be killed because of his skin color. So police cleared him almost immediately, but unfortunately that didn't stop the internet from continuing to agonize him and his family. It wasn't until like some of these major documentaries started coming out and the news channels started reporting that he had been cleared that they started to finally leave him alone. Now we are six years away from this and his family for the most part is left alone because of this, but to be honest, they still face their own injustices. But another suspect was her ex-boyfriend, Brian Rudd. I hate to like highlight this at this point, but it's important to notice that all of her ex-boyfriends and boyfriends were black. So a lot of people in the community, especially the ones on the internet, were saying that it was either one of her black boyfriends that did this to her because she was white and they were black or she was killed for dating black guys. So unfortunately the police really kind of started looking at every single black guy that was in her life specifically, or even once they ran out of those, they started targeting just black guys in the community in general. So one of the black guys that was targeted first was Brian Rudd, her ex-boyfriend but he was ruled out because he was out of the state at the time. Internet sleuths even tried to point the fingers at Ben Chambers, Jessica's dad, due to his previous prison arrest and all of that sort of stuff. But like, if you watch any of the interviews with her dad, it's not true. Somebody even said that her dad probably did this to her because she was dating black guys and he was embarrassed because of it. Once again, I don't think that that's the case here. You can watch the interviews with him and make your decision. We can discuss it. I would love to hear your side of this because this case has kept my mind busy for years. So they were questioning pretty much all of the black men in town. Uh, They even questioned her current boyfriend. And yes, you might be asking, why am I only bringing up a current boyfriend now in this case? And honestly, it's because he's in jail (laughs) at the time of this. He's in jail on burglary charges. He had been in jail since uh, about the beginning of November. And this happened December 6th. Uh, But yeah, he was incarcerated for burglary. burglary, And I lost my place. Oh, 
it's not relevant to me, but some people feel like it's relevant to mention that he was nine years older than her. Once again, she was 18, 19 years old at the time of this. So, I mean, it is important, but once again, he was in jail at this time. It's not really important to this story, in my opinion. But some people in the community do think that he might have put a hit out on her because he was a very jealous person. And if he even thought that she was being unfaithful to him and she had been hanging out with Quentin the day of her murder, then, I mean, yeah, it it could be possible. But there was absolutely zero proof that he had put a hit out. There was no, like, phone logs out from him to anybody unusual. There were no letters out. It just, it didn't add up there. Her mom does confirm that Jessica was still dating Travis at the time of her death, as far as she knew, she was still talking to him on the phone at least once a day, and they never actually had a breakup. So yes, she was hanging out with Quentin, but she was in a relationship with Travis Sanford. (laughs) I do have a little side story here that I wanted to mention, and it kind of felt useless to bring this up later, but Travis Sanford was actually murdered in March of 2019. He was 33 at the time and he was found shot to death in his home in Cortland, Mississippi. Sheriff Dennis Darby reported that Travis was shot and killed over $700 in a dice game by Myron Ardell Powell Jr., who was 24 years old at the time. Myron was arrested and charged with the murder of Travis Sanford, He had fired the gun twice. Only one bullet actually hit Travis, but it was a fatal shot. And Travis's girlfriend and two small children were in the home at the time. So just a little side travesty for my main travesty here. Right. When investigators asked Quentin if he knew of anyone by Eric or Derek, of course he had an answer. (laughs) He says that this man, Derek Holmes, had been kind of bothering Jessica lately. Derek Holmes just so happened to have served time for exploitation of a minor. And he was also a registered sex offender. Great guy. Great guy. Also an easy target. Depends on how you look at this. Really? So get this. Derek, the registered sex offender, his alibi... Do you want to get? You want, do you want to guess? You're never gonna guess. Um, you're, you're never gonna guess. He was at home rubbing his mama's feet. What? <laughs> this is confirmed and approved by the police. He was at home rubbing his mama's feet like he does every night, like a good old Southern boy. Oh Jesus! But his mom does have diabetes, so this is a likely story. It's just a. A dark chuckle humor sort of moment. For me, at least. Yeah. But Derek's mom, his brothers, and his neighbors all confirmed that he was home most of the night. Or, no, that his his neighbors were outside for most of the night. They confirmed that Derek never left. And so, like, I don't know if this is a popular thing everywhere, but down here in the South, you kind of hang out on your patio and out on your lawn. And, like, it's that Southern hospitality You sit outside, you sip lemonade, alcohol, whatever the fuck you want. I don't care. But, like, it's just a slow southern summer 
night. I mean, yeah. this is December, but like, this is what it's our way of life down here. So I can absolutely see his neighbors just chilling outside on the patio, watching shit go down and being able to tell you, yeah, no, he definitely was home all night. So police continued down the Eric Derrick trail, but nothing ever came of it. Even when they went into Jessica's phone, they searched her contacts. There was nobody by the name of Eric or Derek. They did, however, at this point, find a slew of text messages from an unsaved number. And they were all very sexually motivated. When they traced this number, it comes back to Quentin Tellis. Yeah. So we'll come back to that and just we'll come back to that in the second episode. But one final thing that I want to say about the Eric Derek thing is that some people, especially several years down the road after this happened, think that maybe she was trying to say wreck, not Eric or Derek, but wreck. Like I was in a car wreck and that's what did this to me. You kind of have to consider like the state that she was in in that moment and how traumatized she would have been if maybe she did wreck or if somebody did this to her, she was probably unconscious unconscious when the car went up in flames and then she wakes up and everything and herself is on fire. Yeah. You have to think of like how traumatizing of a moment that has to be and how shocked you would be. And then literally 93% of her body was on fire and most of that was focused on her chest and her mouth. There were even burns inside of her mouth on her tongue and lips and inside. And so I have a hard time talking on a good day. I can imagine that if my mouth was burnt alive, like a fucking s'more, I probably would not be able to say anything. Yeah. And then from the experience of whenever I fell a few weeks back and I had the shock or whatever that was that happened and I have no memory of it and you just kind of depend on your instincts and your, um, like your habits, like, thank God I got myself home, but that was a habit. That was an instinct. That's something that I used to do every single day. And so, yes, she responded and said, my name is Jessica Chambers, but how many times in her life has she said her name? Right. She hasn't had to respond, who did this to you multiple times in her life? So, like, it's a lot of people question, how could she get one answer right and one answer wrong? Well, you've never been in that situation where everything around you is on fire and you were in a very traumatic moment. So, like, how can you say what is right and what is wrong for her. I I think it's very plausible that she would be able to answer her name right off the bat. And then, who did this to you? A car wreck. I, I think that's possible. I think her answering Eric or Derek is quite possible, too. And unfortunately, we will never know from her perspective. So, that is the end of my first part of this episode. If I were to keep you here for the second part, we would be here for another hour. <laughs> so we're going to make this another two-parter for you today. So come back and see us on to hear us on Tuesday. And we will continue on our thoughts yeah. of who did this. 
who is guilty. If you have any thoughts of who did this, if you have any like insider tips, because I know a lot of our listeners are Southern listeners, like let us know. Once again, this was a nationwide case. So even if you aren't from here and you have any tips, you noticed anything on the internet during these years, I would love to talk about this. Like I said, I have been very fascinated with this case for eight years now. Seven years. Seven years now. But yeah. All right. We're going to kick you off to the last call with that. Bye. All right. Welcome to another last call with your bartender, Trish. And after that episode, we are going to kind of do something lighthearted like we always try to do. And since it's Mardi Gras, which I know I'm a northerner, so like this wasn't really anything we celebrated, but now being down here in Alabama, the home of Mardi Gras, it is a huge thing and is something I've had to get used to. And I've slowly started learning more and more about it. So for our non-Southern listeners... I was raised in Mississippi, so while we were not as devoted to it as Louisiana and I'm going to go, I'm just going to say Mobile slash Alabama coast because it's not all of Alabama that is as into it as down here. Um, But we did celebrate it growing up, so I knew a lot, but I definitely did not know that mobile was the yeah claims it's a big battle back and forth between the two cities mobile also likes to call themselves the twin city to new orleans and while they have a lot of similarities like nothing can hold a flame to new orleans (laughs) it's not the same but like i said this little fun facts i'm about to do are just 10 fun facts about mardi gras I'm here for it. Most of these, like I've said, if you if you're from the South, you you pretty much probably heard these. Mm-hmm. So Mardi Gras is always the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday. Like mm-hmm. we do celebrations all the way like up to it, but like it is the, a whole season. Yes. The big big parade is always done on Fat Tuesday, which Basically, Mardi Gras in French means Fat Tuesday, so. (laughs) And Ash Wednesday always follows it, and it marks the beginning of Lent. So basically, this is, uh, like, the South's way of celebrating (laughs) before they have to start giving up shit. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's the bottom line. Mardi Gras also marks the end of carnival season, so countries around the world celebrate Mardi Gras as the last day of carnival season, which starts after Christmas, which is, it says, which starts after Christmas on January 6th, known as Twelfth Night. Mardi Gras is also known as Pancake Day in places like Ireland, England, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. People celebrate Mardi Gras by eating pancakes and participating in pancake-themed activities. I'm not opposed to that, but I still prefer our Mardi Gras. Yes. Give me a king cake. (laughs) We're getting to king cakes. Hold on. 
So the official colors of Mardi Gras are purple, gold, and green. Purple signifies justice. Gold means power. And green stands for faith because although we have fun and it's become a big like drinking thing and that it, it essentially is rooted in like Christianity, like Catholicism, yes. like all that. King cake is eaten all throughout carnival season. Yes. <laughs> King King's cake or three King's cake. It's eaten throughout the world during carnival season in the U.S. is traditionally purple, green, and gold with a trinket baby Jesus inside. And whoever gets the baby Jesus is said to have good luck all year. And you also have to buy the king cake next year. Yes. I don't know if that's in your facts. It's not, but yes, that but is the you thing. you get the baby, you have to buy the next king cake. That is the rule. We don't make the rules. We just enforce the rules. What I always find funny is, like, if you go to Rouse's or, like, Winn-Dixie, wherever you're going to pick up your king cake from, like, the ones that people usually always get and bring to work, mm -hmm. the little baby just, like, comes in a packet on the side, and you're just supposed to, like, shove it in the cake, I guess. Well, they used to put them in the king cakes. Let me guess. People start choking them? Yes. Because <laughs> people are dumb. There were, there were stickers on it, notes, like, there's a baby inside. No, it didn't fucking help. Uh, Just dumbasses ruining it for all of us. That's hilarious. But, yeah, I'm always like, oh, found the baby. Sorry, yeah, most of the time, <laughs> we don't even put the baby in the king cake. Whenever I make homemade king cake, though, however, that's a different story. Yeah. So, the first New Orleans Mardi Gras parade was 177 years ago. New Orleans has been celebrating Fat Tuesday with parades since 1837. The first floats appeared in the parade in 1857. And parades are planned by crews, which crews are organizations that put on a parade and or a ball for Mardi Gras and slash carnival. They are clubs of a sort. With dues ranging from twenty dollars to thousands of dollars annually, <laughs> right? Must be nice to have that type of money. It's um, sororities and fraternities for adults. Yep. Crews are also responsible for selecting carnival royalty in New Orleans, such as Rex, the King of Mardi Gras, which down here, like. The big day a lot of people look forward to besides Fat Tuesday is Joe Kane Day, which I have myself have never gone downtown to witness in person, but it's such a big day that it gets like televised here. <laughs> so, and this one's specific to Mobile, right? Like, I think not, so. I'm I think sure it's it a big thing for Mobile. It's not everywhere that's that does the Mardi Gras parades and whatnot. It's yes. just Mobile. <laughs> Something I didn't know. Masks are required by law for float riders. It's technically illegal to ride on a float without a mask. The original purpose for the mask was to get rid of social constraints for the day, allowing people to mingle with whomever they choose. Hmm. I was like, well... I don't think it's really enforced anymore because right. I've definitely gone and seen people oh, not sure. wearing masks, but 
I guess technically if you read like bylaws on that, it's supposed to be done. Right. Beads have been a tradition since the early 1900s. Beads were first thrown by Santa during a parade in the early 1900s. It had to be Santa, right? <laughs> it wasn't until a few decades ago that they became synonymous with flashing. People also he would be so proud. Right. <laughs> People also throw stuffed animals, toys, and more. You gotta be careful when you go a parade because man, if you get some of these things they throw, if you get sidelined by those. When I was a kid, I wanted to go to all of the parades, and now that I'm an adult, I'll just watch them from home. Right. It's it's too peopley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh so Mardi Gras is a state holiday in some places. Yep. So Fat Tuesday is an official state holiday in Alabama. The it has in parentheses the home of the first Mardi Gras parade and second biggest celebration. Florida and parts of Louisiana also claim it as a holiday. Although it's not a state holiday in Texas, Galveston is home of one of the biggest celebrations in the country. It's a port city, too, so that makes yeah. sense. But, New Orleans is a port city. Mobile is a port city. Yep. But those are the ten little fun facts it has. Like I said, you can look up a lot of it, but I just figured with it being Mardi Gras season and we're just kind of getting into it here, I think... Last Friday was the first weekend of balls and whatnot, I think. Yes. So. <clears throat> Hope you enjoyed that. Yeah. And Remember to check us out on all of our socials. We have our TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tequila She Wrote across the board. You can also email us cocktail suggestions, crime case suggestions, compliments. Right. <laughs> Love notes, whatever you want to send. Tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up that you can join for as little as two dollars a month. You get a little bonus episode. Once ads start, you'll get ad-free episodes. We also have in like our higher tiers, you have like a ruining paradise, you have haunted case, all this other stuff. So Check it out. Check us out every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you're listening to us now. And we will see you later. Thanks for riding on this hot mess, hot mess express. <laughs> toot toot. Beep beep. <laughs>